Welcome to the Three Wise Men of Divorce, Money, Psych, and Law podcast. Sit down with the California divorce experts, financial divorce consultant Mark Hill, psychologist Scott Weiner, and attorney Sean Weber for a frank and casual conversation about divorce, separation, co-parenting, and the difficult decisions real people like you face during these tough times. We know that if you are looking at divorce or separation, it can be scary and overwhelming. With combined experience of over 70 years in divorce and conflict management, we are here for you and look forward to helping by sharing our unique ideas, thoughts, and perspectives on divorce, separation, and co-parenting. Well, Scott and Mark, how are you doing? Oh, I'm well. How about you, Mark? How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good for an old guy. Have you uh, come across anybody in your travels as divorce professionals who is in a state of high conflict lately? Increasingly Uh, under the COVID environment, I would say. I don't think I've come across any but a few that weren't in high conflict. (laughs) There's something about the environment we're in that's driving people to, to more conflict. Like if they weren't high conflict before, they really are now, I've learned it. The intensity is higher. We talked about this. So we have with us today a really good friend of mine and, and uh, uh, just a really good guy generally. Uh, but Bill Eddy, who is, uh, you're the director and founder of the High Conflict Institute. Is that correct? Well, actually, co-founder. co-founder. And now I'm the chief innovation officer. So I get to make up oh. methods and manuals and books and all that stuff. So, so Bill Eddy, he, you're known internationally. I can't tell you how many places I go where people are like, oh, do you know Bill Eddy? So Pete, your, your name's getting around. Uh, and, and I have to say, you're probably the authority in family law communities, at least. And I think also outside of family law communities for high conflict personalities and, and how to deal with their really costly disputes. And uh, I know I, over the years, I've learned a lot from you. I, I've known you. How long has it been? I think I started to get to know you back in 2003 or so when I was a baby attorney. I, I was thinking back and I was thinking somewhere around there. It was the early 2000s when I was going to court all the time and trying to get a mediation practice going. And you were a new lawyer and you thought, huh. That's a cool idea. Someday I want to do mostly mediation. Yeah, so right. <laughs> it, it took us each a while, but um, yeah, so we go back almost 20 years. It's, well, it's, and then, it's it, great to see your success and how you've been coming along. Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's, been, it's been a long road, hasn't it? Well, mm-hmm. I, I remember when you stopped litigating, you used to send me a lot of your cases that were the <laughs> litigated people. And I always, I would tell my staff, okay, if they say Bill Eddy referred them, buckle up. <laughs> because well, at least it was, they didn't say no. And I, I didn't say no. No, I, yeah. and I learned a lot early, you know, cutting my eye teeth on some of those really kind of challenging high conflict cases. Where, yeah. So you have um, three theories yeah. of, high con- of the high conflict case. And I I just wanted to talk to you about what those were. Yeah, this is something that recently I've really become concerned about. And that is high conflict cases involve two people 
or maybe two armies, depending on how many family members get involved and friends and coworkers, but fundamentally two people. And what I'm seeing, I do a lot of consultation now, a lot of training, writing, consultation. And what I'm seeing is that the cases that are the worst are misunderstood. And they're misunderstood by professionals who don't realize that there's three possibilities when one person says the other person is acting badly or they're abusive or alienating or an addict or whatever they are. High conflict cases have at least one person saying the other person is just totally rotten for all these reasons. But what's confusing is on the surface, there's anger, there's blame, there's counter blame, there's fear, there's lots of emotions and a lot of muddy information. And what happens is sometimes some professionals go, well, that must be true. And now let's talk about what to do with the rotten person. But other professionals say, well, that couldn't be true. That's a false allegation. The person who's saying that is projecting and they have a lot of problems and they're distorting and they're a high conflict person. So let's figure out what to do with that person. And then there's people that say, it's always both people. You know, if one person's an addict, the other one probably is too. If a one's lying, the other probably is lying too. One's hiding money, the other's probably. It's all equal and just go away, people. It's so, Hitler I, doesn't marry uh, Mother Teresa, that theory. Right. I've always had the theory that the only person who would marry Hitler would be Mother Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yes. And when I became a family lawyer, actually 93, no, 1992, I passed the bar in 92 and did the swearing thing to get in. Um, there was a lot of talk about that, that Mother Teresa doesn't marry Hitler and it's both people. So that theory was very strong. But then over the course of the 1990s, we started seeing all these abuse cases. You know, there was the um, OJ Simpson case, domestic violence, domestic murder. People are going, wow there really are one-sided cases where there's an abusive person and a victim. But then by about 2000, suddenly people are saying, there's a lot of false allegations out there, especially child sexual abuse, that really got studied. Um, and so people are saying, well, you know, we're putting daycare workers in jail for 40 years because of child sexual abuse that never happened and that the way kids are interviewed um, made people think they were, you know, the kids said, oh yeah, you know, Mr. Jones did this to me. So things reversed maybe in the early 2000s and now we're in a way, there's a lot of false allegations here. And when someone says stuff, it's just to get an advantage in family court. So by now, all three of these have had like at least a decade or more of people subscribing to them. So I'll wrap up with my pitch, which is you can't tell on the surface 
which of these th three theories applies in any one case. You have to get under the surface, get the facts of the case, and understand, consider all three theories before you reach a conclusion. So that's my message to professionals, to individuals going through divorce, to parents, etc. is you've got to understand this can be misinterpreted and you've got to put out the information so people resolve realistically which of these it is without an unconscious presumption. Well, that raises the question for me because I've always said, you know, there's always three stories. There's what he said, what she said, and what really happened. How do you really know what is the truth? Um, I've struggled with this, um, uh, you know, even on a personal level many years ago when I had a wife that uh, had an alcohol problem and could get violent. And I've seen it with so many clients. The stories you hear are just so different of the incidents when there's been an altercation. Well, what, what I think is to start is you have to look under the surface. You have to look at evidence, what happened, things that are known by neutral people. What do outside people say? Um, most useful information to me in a lot of these high conflict cases is what the preponderance of the family and friends say. Because there's usually at least one friend or one family member that says, you know, she's full of it, or he's, he's a manipulator, don't believe him. And everyone else is always wonderful. And I've got someone saying, but he's a manipulator, so I've got to look a little more deeply at that. But the biggest thing I think is looking for what's the pattern of behavior. We all have personality patterns of behavior. High conflict people have a narrower pattern of behavior. So it's actually easier to recognize and easier to predict. So what I say is what's the pattern under the surface? And then like one person lies all the time. And a lot of people say they've been caught lying, this, that, and the other thing. And the other person's, you know, got a responsible job. People say, yeah, pretty straight arrow kind of person. And you start, the blanks start getting filled in. And so to me, it's looking for the patterns. Now, if you want, I'll tell you how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, we want to know what the patterns are. I mean, I, I, have, to, I have to agree with what you're saying is, is I, I can't tell you how many times somebody's come into my office, they presented one way. And I think I know where this case is going. And then when you get to see the patterns that you're describing and you kind of live with the case for a little bit, you really do see what's really going on, but, but it does take some observation and not prejudging based on the first client interview. Right. Right. And I think you're absolutely right. That's key is not prejudging and lawyers, judges, mediators, therapists by nature do that because humans do that. So we actually have to have this extra thing that says, no, no, don't, not yet. We don't, we're not sure, you know, we need to know a lot more. And, and it's, it's to some extent fighting with our human nature, um, which wants to have conclusions and know what to do and what not to do. So you know, don't prejudge. 
it just so happens that um, <laughs> I don't know whether I've, I haven't done a thousand of them. And a number of hundreds of psychological evaluations. And when I was in my postdoctoral internship time, I was out in East County and uh, the uh, guy who ran the, the project that I was working for said, well, you know, we've been asked by the court to do uh, some custody evaluations. Would anybody like to do that? You never saw hands burying on the floor someplace <laughs> so fast. And I went, I'll do that. I'd been hospital I mean, I'd been hospital trained doing psyche valves. I was good at them. Well, what the hell, you know? Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not afraid of being grilled by some lawyer. What are they going to take my lungs out? No. I mean, I might get embarrassed or made wrong too bad. So off I went, I must say, I must say that the presentations of, of, of the quote unquote facts would become so, so transparently biased and what have you. And by the time I'd get done doing a pretty hard headed psychological evaluation and producing some kind of a recommendation for, well, this is what kind of person produces this kind of a profile. And I can't guarantee that this is representative, but I, I, I dig hard <laughs> and, and uh, I would find that, yes, the stories would be many times, many times, not what it seemed. And I would go to court and I would say one time of those many, 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 the court went in absolute reverse of my recommendation. Mm -hmm. And I asked, I asked only the judge, I asked the judge only one thing, your honor, should this turn out to be dangerous as I suspect it might, can you, you know, write your orders such that a, a, a reversal can occur that would, you know, incorporate the recommendations that I'm putting forward. He said, certainly. I got a phone call from him about a month later. This rosy appearing person had returned to her um, profession <laughs> and, and, look, and this guy who had been, you know, basically accused of this, that, and the other, who was really a good guy, but didn't look as great on paper, you know, reverted to the, you know, the parent who was most likely to take care of the children. It, you know, I, everything, everything was presented as the opposite of what I would right. say you know, now this is not to make some grand defense of psychological evaluations or evaluators. Boy, can we ever blow it? I know that. But, you know, that's fair third party kind of thing. Yeah, I think mostly that the digging that psychologists do can see these patterns and can see what's going on. And that's one thing I often recommend in the worst cases, I say, you know, the I think the court's probably getting it backwards. Ask for a psyche valve, and that that's got a better chance at understanding the case. We're just um, folks too. I mean, we're just people too. We, right. we have our biases and all that too. And and I must admit that I have read not well, maybe maybe a hundred psyche valves, not hundreds, 
And I found many that I disagreed with the recommendations, but fewer that I disagreed with the report. Right. And that's where I think... That's interesting. And that's where I think evaluators, just like judges, lawyers, mediators, et cetera, get trapped by their presumptions and get emotionally hooked by the charm of high conflict people. Oh, and and they're so good at it, aren't they? Aren't they just? Yeah. You know, um, there's there's a profile in the MMPI that a very close friend of mine is a world expert on. Four nine called four niners, right? (laughs) (laughs) They got the high energy and the charm, but boy, they're sociopaths at the extreme. Yeah, and those are those are called PDs, psychopathic deviant. (laughs) I don't know if you know, but I I did a webinar that's also on um, our website, and I call it sociopaths, the con artists of family law because they're invested in deceiving you. It's not like, you know, they're hiding. They're out there actively deceiving you. And some of them love professionals because they're so good at manipulating them and making you feel sorry for them. Like they're a victim. They persuade you they're a victim when they're really the perpetrator. And it's fascinating to see that and tragic to see that in retrospect and realize you've been conned. It is awful. It is simply awful. Yeah. I am not defending the evaluator right now, but I want to say that the way that that actually operates is we're sitting there, we're doing this psyche eval. And I mean, I am trained to put pressure, a certain kind of psychological pressure on the people I'm evaluating. Mm-hmm. Not, not in a mean kind of way, but to basically work my way underneath the defenses and coping strategies. Well, ironically, or perhaps paradoxically, that puts pressure on us too, on the evaluators. And if somebody maintains a kind of a, a, a really civil mean, a, a almost delightful personality presence under those circumstances, it's very tough for us not to project that, well, you know, this is, the, this is the kind of personality that I would like to see surrounding little Jimmy and little Tommy and little Susie over the period of the next years of their lives, right? That charm and this, that, and the other. Of course, it's, a, it's an N of one presentation. That's right. how they're presenting to me. They could be smilingly controlling wicked at home with Johnny, Jimmy, and Susie. So it goes. And that's what, that's what I saw in court was that, that, that these folks were some of the best at looking like the reasonable person in front of the judge. And we get judges that have maybe they're brand new or they're in their first or second, if we're lucky, their third year, and then they move on, but they haven't seen hundreds like you have, like I have, like Mark and Sean have. Sure. And so a reasonable person speaking reasonably about someone that looks like a mess, you know, maybe maybe the woman's sitting at the table in tears um, because the recommendations didn't come out in her favor. 
And this is the guy that beat her up 40 times, but yeah. somehow she's not telling anybody because she doesn't want to upset him. And the judge thinks he looks so reasonable. This so, is why I refused to do custody evaluations after a certain point when I was not able to interview each parent with the children. Because the yes. kid, the kids will the kids will let you know. Not that they'll say it so much, but how they behave will let you know what the relationship is really like. And and, and I agree, that's the key is seeing them interact. Yeah. Seeing them interact uh, with the child. What's amazing to me is I remember outside in the hall at court that <laughs> I saw people the person that was like I remember this one woman, she she acted frightened. Um, so when she came into the courtroom and sat down and, and something, and she acted like frightened and afraid, I think like, like the husband waved or just said, you know, just acknowledge her. And she like jumped and the judge saw that and thought this guy's a jerk. And this woman's, you know, terrified of him. We're out in the hallway and she's screaming at him. You know, what are you doing with such and such? She was the aggressor in that relationship. In, in my divorce from hell that went all the way to a one-day trial back in the 90s, oh. uh, as the judge is reading her decision from the bench, she says, an offhand comment, I think there's been some intimidation with, for, um, with Mrs. Hill here. I, that was the most, of, I forget the money and the screw-up she made around the thing she missed, that was the most offensive thing to me yeah. because I don't know where she ever got that impression. Uh, yes, Marcy could turn the waterworks on with great effect and always did uh, and was somewhat histrionic being of Italian background, no, no <laughs> attachment there, but she was very Italian. And, and it, it was offensive to me that the judge would say that comment and make some judgments around very limited interactions. Right. You know. Right. And that's why jumping to the conclusion that it's true or it's false or it's both people is so harmful, really. Yeah. Is you really miss what's going on. And so you're treating a problem that doesn't exist. And the real problems aren't getting addressed. Anyway, let me just quickly say about recognizing patterns is there's not a lot of personality patterns when it comes to high conflict people. And so looking for things like lying, that's often one of the common ones. Looking for aggressive behavior towards you or towards your child. Um, looking for misleading professionals, um, looking for unmanaged emotions, looking for extreme like violent behavior, looking for neglect, neglecting health issues. These kinds of things we often see a pattern of when you look under the surface. The thing I tell people is don't tell the court or other professionals that you're co-parent is a borderline or a narcissist or an antisocial is say, here's a pattern of behavior I'm concerned about. And the reason the pattern's important is patterns tend to continue. And that's why decision makers need to act based on the continuation of this pattern. What's the best parenting plan? Rather than 
just promise me, ma'am, you'll stop lying and making false allegations against him. And just promise me, sir, you'll stop threatening and stalking and all of that. <laughs> so anyway, those are the patterns to look for rather than having any of these as a presumption. You've identified it. We have a high conflict client at the table. Yeah. We identified the patterns and we've, I won't say diagnosed, but we've, uh, we have an understanding of what we're dealing with. How does one deal with it? Well, the question is change. If they change those patterns, then certain things may be able to happen, especially with parenting. If they don't change those patterns, then you need to approach it quite differently. So the question in my mind is, can they change? And that's why we recommend like parent education that's geared to high conflict people. Like we developed a method called New Ways for Families, which teaches repetitively four key skills, flexible thinking, managed emotions, moderate behavior, and checking yourself, which is the opposite of what high conflict people do. They check everybody else. Um, and see if after they go through like counseling for six sessions or online program for 12 sessions, see if they have changed. And if they have, there's hope that maybe that'll affect the future planning. And if they haven't, then that means you need to, what you see is all you're gonna get. And you need to make plans based on that. How much self-awareness should you look for in terms of the client being appreciative of the fact that they need to change, that they have an issue? So many clients just point the finger and say, fix that jerk and everything would be fine. Well, that's, you're actually hitting the core issue for personality disorders. The core issue you can get to with two questions. What's your part in the problem? And if they can't find any part. And the other is, what are you willing to do differently in the future? And if there's nothing they're willing to do differently in the future, you're probably looking at a personality disorder. And that means you're looking at a low likelihood of change unless there's a lot of effort. And they don't usually make a lot of effort. That, some do, that, though. I want to give credit. Some do. That is so true what you're saying, Bill. I think that external blaming is, is one of the biggest uh, giveaways. I, I mean, you know, sometimes you'll ask these people, you know, what's your part in the problem? And they just look at you blankly like they, they didn't even understand what you said. You might as well be talking to a wall. It, do, it doesn't make any sense. You might as well, you, you, should, you could be speaking Yiddish and it would make more yeah. sense to them. How can I have a part in how she yells all the time? How can I have a part in how she always hits the children? What are you asking? I don't even understand you. Or, or there's a lash out. But you're taking her side, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. Or why don't you like me, Bill? That's what I get when I ask the question. Why don't you like me? I, I didn't say I didn't like you. Actually, I do like you, and that makes me worry. No, I don't say that. <laughs> makes me for myself. <laughs> but this is an easy question, and that's people tell me, they say, you know, after hearing you talk, I'm a little worried I might have a personality disorder. And I say, well, that's, first of all, a good sign if you're worried about it, because that means you're self-reflecting, which isn't something mm -hmm. people do with personality disorders. <laughs> Yeah, but if you're self-aware and ask the question, yeah. That's it. If you can ask yourself these two questions and answer them with openness, 
then there's a good chance you don't have a personality disorder. Well, I've noticed I, this too, Bill. I mean, and, and maybe you can comment on this is, is sometimes you see people that maybe in their normal life, they don't show these patterns of behavior, but when they interact with their spouse in this really high tense kind of situation, maybe because they're going to the higher, the fight or flight place in their brain, they yeah. exhibit traits of a personality disorder. Yeah. And that's, first of all, it tends to come out more in close relationships um, and, and in times of, of stress. And so you put those together, you see a lot of this. But there is a good question is what do they do with other people in other settings? And the, the DSM-5 that diagnoses personality disorders or helps therapists do that, says that they have this pattern of behavior in more than one setting. And so that's right. always a question to me. Like someone who can't keep a job and um, has gone through seven lawyers and now you're considering taking their case as a lawyer, um, that's a sign you might have a pattern here. <laughs> They're estranged from every member of their family. And that often, yeah. Now, sometimes that may be healthy if the rest of the family <laughs> has problems. There are some people where that's the, you got to get away from the family. But to some extent, this runs in families. And so you, you've got to see. But it's getting under the surface. Get as many facts and see if they show a pattern. Yeah, that's that's my short summary, I would say. So, Bill, you know, in, in talking to people that are trying to deal with, you know, maybe they've got a difficult person on the other side of their case. You know, you wrote a book that I have found to be one of the most useful books as a professional in my career, and that is uh, Biff. And you've got another version of it coming out for co-parents. Could you talk a little bit about what Biff is and and, and maybe yeah. talk a little bit about your your upcoming book? Be happy to. So BIF stands for brief, informative, friendly, and firm. And this is as a response to people's hostile emails or misinformed. It was developed to respond in writing to hostility and misinformation in writing. Although you can actually use this approach verbally as well. So it's interesting, the new book is called Biff for Co-Parent Communication, your guide to difficult texts, emails, and social media um, posts. And the idea with this is to give examples. We have 28 examples in dealing with a whole range of parenting issues. So the way this started, and I tell this story in the introduction to the book, that this started in March of 2007. The reason why I know is I was giving a training in Phoenix to about 20 people, family law people. Two of them were judges. And in the middle of the training, they said, what can we do about these horrible email conversations that we keep getting filed with the court? And I said, well, I think they need to be brief. You know, teach people that they have to be brief because they go on and on and sooner or later they trigger each other. And I said they should be straight information, just informative. 
not opinions, emotions, defenses, all that stuff. And this is what I was learning from representing clients and helping them rewrite their emails um, and such. And I said that they need to actually have a friendly tone. And I know this is the opposite of what you feel like doing, but with a friendly tone, you keep the conversation calm. That the goal is not engaging, not making it keep going. So one of the judges said, oh, well, that's BIF, B-I-F. And I said, you know, I never thought of it that way, but you're right. And the other judge said, well, you know, you should add an F and you have Biff, like the name. And I said, well, actually, it should end the conversation. So firm, firm's probably a good F for that. So we came out of that training and people said their favorite part was Biff. And so I started working on that and teaching that and refining that and teaching people how to coach for that and put out the Biff book in 2011 um, that, that you're referring to, the first one. But this one, we have two co-authors. So it's Annette Burns, who's a family lawyer, very experienced, and she was actually the president of AFCC a couple of years ago. And Kevin Chafin, who's a therapist in uh, Kansas, and they both have been fans of Biff for like a decade or more. So the three of us wrote it, and we used a lot of their examples, as well as a couple of mine, and covered, I'll, I'll just read some on the list here. So school issues, parents sent about school, fight about school, schedule change issues, um, trying to get the other person to say, I'm sorry, issues, gatekeeping issues, dance lesson issues, birthday party issues, exchange and rescheduling, childcare, the school teacher, you're trying to talk to the school teacher and shut me out. Illness, you, Johnny came back with an ear infection and you didn't pay any attention to it and I had to go to the doctor. So you're a jerk, jerk. what are you gonna do about it? Um, scheduling medical appointments without notice. So all these possible conflicts, there's, we've got 28 examples, home repairs, step parent. Oh, is good. Kids, is, where is the kid's stuff one. in there? What, what was that? Oh, he, Mark was about the kid's stuff. And I was thinking, introducing the child to the new slut, you know? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that one comes up. We yeah. get that. We get that. Well, I mean, how many times do you see this email and it, and it comes at you or it comes at one of your parties and it's, they're calling this, this person everything except for a human, you know, it's this long <laughs> treatise of how horrible they are. And there's maybe one kernel of something that they actually need to respond to. Absolutely. And that's, that's what's important. One thing I learned from Kevin Chafin in this book is, I don't know if he figured this out or a client of his did, is to take the hostile email that you receive, rewrite it as a BIF, yeah. and then write your own response. In other words, write it the way it should have been written. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's like two paragraphs and there's one sentence that had a request in it. Yeah. And that's what you're gonna to respond to. And that's really all that mattered. So you kind of cleanse it <laughs> it's, of the garbage. It's good stuff. 
That's very good. That's so good. Yeah. So yeah. I thank Kevin for that tip. But yeah, and so the idea is they're usually short, like three or four sentences, even if it's a couple pages you're responding to. The straight information might be, you know, the, uh, the school event will be at from three o'clock to five o'clock. Um, here's what the kids should wear. Um, see you there. Yeah, see you there. Have a you nice know. day. Have a nice day. <laughs> Uh, be careful you don't cross into sarcasm. You gotta be sincere. Have a wonderful day, darling. <laughs> yes. Right, right. Well, I mean, so, people have a, a temptation to want to answer point for point, right? And yes, and that's... Make it short. Especially when the points are accusations or can yeah. be construed as such. Right. Well, what's interesting is it's not usually a legal document. So you don't have to respond to every allegation. And the <laughs> it, best, feels, it feels like a legal document yes. to them, though. Right. And what right. I tell people is, look, he wrote it to you. Right now, it's not a legal document. So you write a BIF response back. Then if it becomes filed with the court, you look good and he looks like a jerk. Or That's so true. He, mm -hmm. Whoever it is. That's so and true. And what's fun for me is I, you know, it really came from judges asking about it. And I teach judges. I just spent two days teaching judges and they love it. And they want, they are sometimes judges order, the parties shall communicate using the BIF communication method. <laughs> and I love it because they yes. have to think, they have to stop and think. Mm -hmm. And one of the messages that I give to professionals is, you might be good at rewriting their responses, but it's better to coach them on how to rewrite it themselves. Teach a man to fish. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you yeah. feed them for a life. I think that's so true. Yeah. So we yeah. came up with 10 questions that people should ask themselves. And, and I teach people to coach this way. First, is it brief? Is it informative? Is it friendly? Is it firm? They look at it and go, well, it's a little long. So, okay, we'll hold that thought. Then does it have any advice? Because that's a common mistake. People say, let me give you some advice, buddy. <laughs> and that doesn't help. That's not what was asked for. <laughs> or an admonishment, you know, like, you better watch your language, sir. And the person saying that isn't watching their language. <laughs> And then no apologies. And I want to take a minute on this because this surprises people. When you're dealing with an angry person, they're not likely to respond well to your apology. What they're going to do is use it to get further angry at you. And what they hear, and especially high conflict people hear, when you say, I'm sorry um, that I was five minutes late. What they heard was, it's all my fault, everything that's gone wrong in your case. And so they have all or nothing thinking. So if you say you're sorry for something, then there's a chance they're going to use that against you in the future. Now, social apologies, I used to say, like, I'm sorry I was five minutes late, but that's probably safe. But when they hear the word sorry, or read the word sorry, they just automatically associate it's all your fault and not at all my fault. So we recommend against that. 
Now, some people say, well, what if, what if it's sad, the situation they're in? I want to say I'm sorry to see you in this situation. Well, that's different. Well, but to be safe, here's what I recommend, is to say I'm saddened to see you're in this situation. So you don't put the sorry word out there anywhere, just to I be see. safe. So it's almost I've, like a psychological admission against interest in a way? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just... It's amazing, but it's almost hypnotic. And I okay. can't tell you how many high conflict people I've made statements to. And when they've repeated it a couple of days later, it missed the key words. Like, I, like I've said, I will not do such and such. A couple of days later, Bill, you said you would do such and such. I said, you missed the word not. <laughs> so anyway, um, you go through these questions through apologies. So now you're at seven questions. The eighth question is, how do you think the other person will uh, respond to this? And that makes people something, hmm, there's something in here that's going to push their buttons. I better take that out. So that's eighth question. Ninth question is, is there anything now that you would change or revise or add? And then the last question, if I'm coaching somebody, is would you like to hear my thoughts about it? Now, I have to tell you, the group of people that's hardest to teach this method to is lawyers, because they already know how you should rewrite it. And they go, let me just tell you what you should do. And I say, no, no, you want the person to learn how to do this themselves. And with that in mind, you want to coach them with these questions. And by question nine, they're figuring out how they might want to edit it. Then question 10, you say your thoughts, you may not have any concerns by that point. So you have to kind of hold your tongue and ask them the questions. Anyway, those questions are in the book, the original book and the new book. And it's basically calms a lot of conversations. And what we're hearing now is that when one person writes this way to their co-parent, that uh, the high conflict co-parent starts calming down and writing back the same way. And they don't even know that it's a technique. They just I've seen that so many them. times, Bill, where we're yeah. where the responding party actually ends up mirroring the Biff method and they've never been taught it. Yeah. I'm, I'm just so excited by that. It's like they learn a new language. I think we've taught about half a million people this method by now. I think so, you're right. Yeah. I think you're probably it's right. It's contagious. And it's I'm really, really good. And it, it, it spreads like wire, wildfire, like any good idea does. So Bill, if, if they want to get a hold of this book or any of your books, you've got a lot of, you are a very well-written professional. Where, how would they get a hold of, of your materials? So, well, these are mostly published by Unhook Books. So they could go to Unhook Books, um, but they're also all on Amazon. They're ebooks mostly, as well as um, paperback, and they're inexpensive. The, um, the new book is, and it's so new, I don't have it in my hands yet, but I have a picture of the cover. And <laughs> it's um, $15.95. That's so, a bargain. Yeah, it's like one minute of lawyer time, therapist time, <laughs> I'm not sure, accountant time. Uh, financial advisor time. 
We'll see. I wish it was and, one and your minute. Books, I, I have to say your books are, are, are easy reading. It's not like it's hard to chew on. It's, it's, it's meant, I, I, I find that your books are, are easily digestible. Good. And yeah, I'd say usually two to three hours at the most to read most of them. And people keep this as a, as a reference. Um, I'm sure this will become a reference because it's- I, I, keep, I keep the original Biff right here at my desk. It's, uh, it's a good book to use and I, I refer my clients to it a lot. And, and uh, I, I, I have to tell you, it has made a big difference in my practice. So I'm grateful now that you have the, uh, the book for co-parenting. That's wonderful. Yeah. And actually it's pre-orders have exceeded all of the other books that I've written. Oh, so good. That's be good. Well, I mean, I have to say, I, I use it more in co-parenting situations than any other scenario. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, Bill, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you for consulting or, or for anything, what would they, what would they need to do? They would come to www.highconflictinstitute.com. And there's a page for setting up consultations. There's lots of books. There's free articles. Um, there's video training for professionals. There's also parent education, court mandated or voluntary, uh, our new ways for families method, it's called. Uh, just tons of information and resources and at a really wide range of affordability. So you can get a book for $16 um, or pay more for a consultation. So that's great. So it's high conflict, I'm sorry, highconflictinstitute.com. Yep, that's it. Easy to remember. Okay, the other great. Thing is they can Google me and they'll find all of this as well. <laughs> you're, you're, do you, I bet you're one of those people that Googles yourself. Do you? Do you? <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I did once two or three years ago. I'm kidding. Oh, okay. <laughs> you are so not the kind of guy that would do that because you're not, yeah. you're not terribly, uh, I don't think you're terribly narcissistic. I, 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 I'm embarrassed to be like a public person. I'm more comfortable. <laughs> I'm happier for you to say that stuff because I don't say that stuff. <laughs> well, I'm happy to say it because it's true. Okay, so highconflictinstitute.com. Bill Eddy is our guest. Uh, check out his website. Uh, check out his books. Uh, he's got a lot to offer. Wow, I'll say. I'm so impressed. How clear, how clear, how clear. Scott, if somebody wants to call you and, and get some information about how to deal with their divorce, what would they need to do? Well, they would call me since I'm so old school. I don't have a website. I feel so remiss. Not that remiss, <laughs> a little remiss. 619-417-5743. I'm Scott Weiner. I'm a psychologist and actually inactive attorney. Um, but I engage in collaborative coaching as well as running a therapy practice and doing mediation. You, you and Bill have a lot in common because Bill is an LCSW and a JD. I used to joke, Bill, that you were bipolar. I, I know. And they were opposite poles, but being bipolar <laughs> makes it possible to manage them. <laughs> so Mark Hill, the financial guy. Sir. How would people yes, get a hold of you? Well, go to my website. Um, my company is Pacific Divorce Management. Uh, website, PACDivorce, P-A-C-D-I-V-O-R-C-E.com. All my contact data is on there. And uh, I can help with any aspects related to the finances of divorce. 
And I might add that Mark trained me in collaborative divorce. So I don't know if you remember. Me too. Go back. Yeah. Long yeah. time ago. Yeah. I, as my, my, my then partner in the wealth management firm I owned said to me after seven years from 2001 to 2008, he came and tapped me on the shoulders as the financial crisis hit and said, day job. <laughs> but I spent that decade flying all over North America training people in that yeah, moment. Yeah, sure I do that. remember. Both well, of you guys, and it's an honor to have been a trainer for both of you. So. <laughs> well, and, and I, I, I love working with you. So um, if somebody wants to get any dispute resolved, they should contact my mediation center. It's WeberDisputeResolution.com. We connect people with the mediator they need to resolve their dispute. It's WeberDisputeResolution.com. That's Weber with one B, like the grill. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Three Wise Men of Divorce, Money, Psych, and Law. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and share with others who may be in a similar place. Until next time, stay safe, healthy, and focused on a positive, bright future. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Every family law case is unique, so no legal, financial, or mental health advice is intended during this podcast. If you need help with your specific situation, feel free to schedule a time to speak with one of us for a personal consultation.